6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of James, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Paul really talks about faith as the means by which we're justified before God. And I think we, I'm assuming we've all had enough traffic with Paul's epistles to understand Paul's major arguments in all of his letters. But James takes a little different tack, not at variance with Paul, but with a different emphasis, and primarily speaks of faith as our justification before men by being visible, reflecting itself in deeds. So James will emphasize deeds. Now, the next question that comes up as we first jump into the book of Yaakov, <laughs> the book of James... Let's read verse 1. It's a great way to start. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How interesting. He takes his posture here, not as his brother. His being a brother was after the flesh, and the Lord is risen, and, is, and he now realizes that he's his Lord. And he puts his name in juxtaposition with God the Father. And, uh, but he, so he's J- James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But who is he writing to? To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. Now, I have to tell you, when I travel, it's amazing to me how often I run into people who are all tangled up in various contrivances that derive from a myth. There are all kinds of people that hold views that derive from this notion that there are ten lost tribes. That is a very popular theme in literature. It is based on a misreading of the text. The the Bible knows nothing of ten lost tribes. So before we jump into James itself, I'd like to nail this a little bit because I keep running into people that are in one deviation or another that's all hung up by the so-called ten lost tribes. They're not ten lost tribes. Tribes that are missing. The 12 tribes that James is writing to are the same that Paul speaks of in his address before Agrippa. In Acts 26, verse 7, Paul is before King Agrippa and he makes reference to the 12 tribes. If they're lost, Paul didn't know that. Okay? You have to go back and understand a little bit of history. Even before the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom, many from the northern kingdom migrated southward. You and I presume that when we speak of the tribe of Ephraim, we mean people. It is also used as a term of geography, because each of the 12 tribes had territory allocated to it. So if you go up to Ephraim, it was a city. It was also what you and I would consider like a county. The people who lived there originally were Ephraimites. However, after when the civil war started between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Rehoboam in the south stayed faithful to the temple services. Jeroboam the north introduced the golden calves and the idolatry and all this stuff. Because he, you know, politically, it was not politically correct to worship the traditional God of the Torah in the northern kingdom. 
So if you were a, a faithful Jew, you were uncomfortable there. You were not politically correct. So what did the smart ones do? They packed up and went south where it was still fashionable to stay faithful to the Torah and the prophets. If you were in the south and you sort of felt like idol worshiping, you were not politically correct in the southern kingdom ever. Well, there were a few exceptions. They went bad too. But the point is, what did you do? You packed up and went north where that was fashionable. So what you find recorded in 1 Kings 12 and in 2 Chronicles 11, it mentions this. Let's just take one of these so you get the flavor of what I'm talking about. Turn to 2 Chronicles 11. As you can probably gather, I've got dozens of these, and I'll spare you the long version. But I think it's worth making this part of our presentation and part of the notes. And I will put in the notes some more references for those that really want to you know, spend some time digging into this. Because it's worth your while putting a little energy in this to get it behind you, because you will, sooner or later, run into it. Let's just pick up about verse 13, just get the tone of it here. And the priests and the Levites that were in all Israel resorted to him out of all their coasts, uh, and for the Levites left their suburbs and their possession, came to Judah and Jerusalem. Bear in mind, the Levites were scattered in 48 cities, the cities of the Levites, scattered throughout the east and west of Jordan and up north and whatever. And so they packed up and came back to Jerusalem. And uh, for Jeroboam and his sons had cast them off from executing the priest's office. In other words, the king up north and his sons disenfranchise the Levites, of course, because they're into idol worship. They don't want any of that. So the Levites, what do they do? They smart ones. They pack up and go down south. Verse 15, And he ordained him priests for the high places, that is the idols, and for the de- devils or demons, and for the calves which he had made. Speaking of Jeroboam. Verse 16, And after them, very important phrase here, after them, out of all the tribes of Israel, such as set their hearts to seek the Lord, God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice unto the Lord, the God of their fathers. And so they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong three years. For three years they walked in the way of David and Solomon. So the point is, you get the picture, there's a migration from all 12 tribes down to the south for the obvious political reasons. And this goes on, i got dozens, I'll spare you all that. Later on, King Asa, when he reigned in the south, another great company migrated from the north. That's in Chronicles 15. And later on, calls from Hezekiah, and also later on, Josiah, to all Israel, including Manasseh and Ephraim, came to worship in the temple. And, so, and God addresses all the twelve tribes in Second Chronicles 11.3 and elsewhere. So, you know, the northern kingdom ultimately falls to the Assyrians, 7.22. The southern kingdom goes from bad to worse, and about a century later, it falls to Nebuchadnezzar. When the Babylonians conquer the Assyrians, they conquer their slaves. So whoever was taken gets commingled with the ones that are taken from Jerusalem anyway. Follow me? So they're commingled again. But in any case, it's interesting that after the Babylonian captivity, the northern kingdom gets uh, to by the Assyrians. A century later, the Babylon rises to power, conquers them, but also captures the southern kingdom, so they're commingled. That lasts 70 years, and then the Persians conquer, and the Persians release them all to go home under Ezra and Nehemiah. After the Babylon, Babylon captivity, the terms Jew and Israelite are used interchangeably. Some people try to make a thing of that. They're wrong. Ezra calls the returning remnant Jews eight times and Israel 40 times. Nehemiah calls them Jews 11 times and Israel 22 times. He speaks of all Israel being back in the land in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 47. 
the remnant who return from Babylon are represented as the entire nation. The book of Malachi opens up with that very statement. Now, in the New Testament, there are other tribes than Judah. Some people say Jew means Judah. No, it means Israel. Uh, other tribes, uh, just you mentioned being the land. Matthew 4, 13, 15. Luke 2, 36. I won't take you through all of these step by step. We'll be in all night. But, and, of course, the 12 tribes are alluded to in Acts 26. Remember Anna, the uh, prophet, her, she knew her identity as a tribe of Asher. And that's in Luke 2. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, says, he cries out, Ye men of Judea. And then a few verses later says, Ye men of Israel. See, they're synonyms as far as he's concerned. And then in a few verses later, he says, All the house of Israel. That's who he's talking to. Paul knew he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And he calls himself a Jew and an Israelite in Romans chapter 11, first verse. And uh, the New Testament speaks of Israel 75 times in 73 verses and uses the word Jew 174 times. So there's more to it. We did a whole study of this. That's the eighth tape of the eight tape set on the 12 tribes of Israel. That's an appendix, if you will, to our commentary in the book of Joshua. So if you want to dig into this ever, you can just dig into that. I hope that we've nailed that because not that it's that important except that there are people that try to make these false discriminations and then build doctrine on them. And they lead you into all kinds of strange views. And uh, they're, they're just, the point I'm trying to make is they're not biblical. And uh, it's a myth in literature that unfortunately has a, a strange fruit. So uh, enough of that. The book of Yaakov, to the 12 tribes, <laughs> is theme, it's a living faith. He's going to be preoccupied with a living faith as evidenced by a righteous living and godly behavior. Now, this happens to be what I believe is our most serious need in the body of Christ. We tend, as Christians, contemporary evangelical Christians, to put our focus on leading people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Evangelism. Leading people to the Lord. We have crusades. Every head bowed, every eye closed, raise your hand. You know, you know the routine. You've all been there. Something that really was invented, so to speak, by Charles Finney. You won't find that in the book of Acts. I don't think you can mind on. And I'm not, I don't mean to knock it. There is a, a fallacy we inherently inherit from all this. We tend to presume that when somebody in our midst makes a decision to receive Jesus Christ, that that's the climax of what we're about. And that's wrong. I believe. That should not be a climax. It should be a beginning. How many of you are saved? Let me show of hands. Praise God. Now my next question, you don't have to raise your hands. What have you done with it? You see, that's just a beginning. And that's, and that's what James is going to hammer at. He's not going to quarrel that you're not saved by faith. If you're saved, how can I tell? You'll notice in the scripture, we are not called to be gift inspectors. Think about that. What gift have you got? Oh, you don't have that gift, then oh my goodness, well, we'll pray for you. No, no. We are not called to be gifted. We're called to be fruit inspectors. It's interesting to me that this little book that has 60 imperatives in 109 verses is going to hammer away at where you and I are hurting the most. 
We've talked a lot. We've been through a lot of books together, through a lot of epistles together, and they're wonderful. I'm certainly not knocking them. And yet, there is, in my opinion, especially as I travel, as I mix with... I've taught the Bible for, well, more than three decades as a layman, doing it full-time the last seven years. But as I've done it full-time and really uh, done it as, as my calling, I am disturbed because as I move among the Christian body... I come to a very disturbing conclusion. And this is just a one person's poll. But when I traveled on Wall Street, when I was doing deals in the secular community, as I traveled among boards of directors of major corporations, I found more character, more sanctity of a commitment in the secular world than I have observed within the Christian body. I ran into people that were crooks and thieves. I ran into officers on a few occasions, not many, but a few occasions, that breached their fiduciary duty by undisclosed conflicts of interest or defrauding the corporation that had trusted them. Not many, but a few. I won't tell you how frequently that has happened within the Christian body. And one of the things that disturbs me as I try to get my... We're all constantly working at trying to get perspective, comparing Scripture with Scripture and trying to get balance. That's the precious thing, is balance. And as you try to do that, what disturbs me is where is the call to integrity and character? Well, it's all over the place. We just don't focus on it. Jesus spoke more about these things than he did about eschatology. Oh, we love to get into pre-trib, post-trib, this, that, and the other thing. And Jesus did indeed focus on that. And for every prophecy that was fulfilled his first coming, there are more than seven yet to be. And so I'm not knocking the area, but he spoke less about that than he did about our walk. And that's what James is going to really focus on. He's going to talk about our living, our faith. Evidencing our faith by righteous living and godly behavior. So we're going to find in James, we're not going to find any big, deep, doctrinal insights. We're going to, though, get hammered about practical Christian ethics. I'll give you one example of what I mean. If you're an employee of an employer... You owe him 60 minutes for every hour you get paid, period. It's an arm's length relationship, really, unless you're a manager. If you're just an employee, you just owe him an honest run for the dollar he's paying you. But if you are a manager or a director of the corporation, you are, before the law, required to be the fiduciary of the employer. You are required by the law to look out for his interests ahead of your own. The relationship of fiduciary in the law is that relationship that you expect between a doctor and his patient, between the lawyer and his client, or the accountant and his client, the term fiduciary. That's different than arm's length. A buy-sell relationship is arm's length. You get all the facts, you look at it, you make your decision, when you've done it, you've done it. That's the basic idea. It's called an arm's length. That's the way businesses generally run, on an arm's length basis. But there are some exceptions, the ones I've mentioned being the most conspicuous of a fiduciary relationship. Now, the interesting thing is that 
Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, 6 to 9, points out that a Christian owes his employer singleness of mind. He owes him a fiduciary relationship. If you're a secular employee, you don't owe your employer that. But if you're a Christian, you owe your employer a fiduciary accountability to protect his customer list, to protect his secrets, to protect his interests. And the day may come when you sever, fine, you do, but you still, you don't, you don't harm, you, you owe him the same relationship as if he was your patient and you were a doctor. In other words, you owe him your best efforts ahead of your own. So in other words, what I'm saying is the Christian standard is higher than the secular one. It should be, I should say. It isn't. A lot of the reason it isn't is due to poor training. Because we don't get that from the pulpits. We don't get that from, from our teaching. And many of the abuses I've suffered from Christians are not because they're malicious, it's because they're untrained. There's the concept of a sanctity of a commitment in our society. It's essential. It's essential for our marriages. It's essential for our dealings. Uh, when I was a uh, manager at Ford, and uh, we got our breaks from Kelsey Hayes, and if I, had a, if I sat down with Ed Hayes or Kelsey Hayes, and he said he's going to do something, I could count on it. He may not have been a moral person, he might have been guilty of all kinds of sins for all I know. But I could count on his word. Why? Because marketing costs are too high to find other customers. Next year we'd be across that same table negotiating next year's breaks. The point is, my word is my bond is an operative a concept at the top levels of corporations, at the top levels of Wall Street. And unfortunately in our society today it's deteriorating, just like our concept of sanctity of marriage and so forth. But anyway, getting back to the main theme here, a Christian is called to a higher standard of integrity, a higher standard of character than the secular world. And yet, candidly, bluntly, at least in my own perceptions, I don't see it. So shame on us, those of us that are on platforms, those who are in pulpits, that we have done such a poor job at communicating God's word, because clearly that's what God would have. Now we're going to go through five chapters in the book of Yaakov, book of James. First chapter will be about victorious faith. What makes faith victorious? Second chapter will be about manifested faith. Third chapter will be about controlling and energizing your faith. And fourth will be submissive faith. And then the fifth, patient and expectant faith. It's going to deal with the nature of faith, which in turn is going to deal with the nature and character of God, Boy, that's a disturbing thing. When you manifest your faith to your neighbors, your workplace, you are making a comment, a public comment on the character of God because they're going to draw inferences by your conduct. That's scary responsibility. And then, of course, James is going to focus on our day-to-day behavior as Christians. And there's going to be more connection between this epistle and the Sermon on the Mount than anywhere else in the New Testament. Sixty imperatives that are going to emerge out of 108 verses. Faith will be the starting point for the Christian, which should manifest itself in deeds, which should reflect a life of wholehearted obedience to Jesus Christ. Precisely because we have faith in Jesus, as illustrated, in, as we'll see also in chapter 2. And then uh, the ultimate, you have the faith which leads to deeds, and the ultimate goal is maturity of character. The perfection, the wholeness of the Christian character. Well, let's jump in. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, the servant of God of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. How refreshing. Paul goes on for about three chapters. His sentences goes on for about three chapters. James is short, 
punchy. You'll find it certainly a relief from Paul's Greek. But uh, anyway, <laughs> a servant. He knew Christ in the flesh no more. He, was, he honors him as Lord and Messiah. He links his name with that of the Father. Whatever doubts he might have had clearly are gone now. And to the 12 tribes. He's, here's a Jew writing to Jews. We'll see that all through here. But let's not forget it's a message from us. Just as Paul's letters written to Gentile Christians were also for Jews, James's letter to Jews is also for us. Verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into divers temptations. Now that's silly. You fall into deep trials, and you're supposed to count it all joy. Is that a call to hypocrisy? <laughs> oh man, my car just got totaled. Isn't that wonderful? I just filed bankruptcy. Isn't that great? You know, Earthquake just wiped out our home of our dreams. Let's count it all joy. Does that sound a little flaky? What's he saying? What he is saying is it'll develop here that when God's people are called upon to pass through trials, it is, first of all, not evidence of God's displeasure. One of the first traps we fall into when things really go against us is to assume that somehow, boy, does my father have it in for me. That's a hard feeling to avoid, but it's a lie. And by the way, the book of Job is the thing, remember Job, he had one thing after, I mean, just the whole concatenation of events. You know, his wealth, his family, his health, I mean, step by step, he is stripped, right? And many people, most books you pick up about comments, commentaries, the book of Job, usually say, well, Job is the book that, why do the innocent suffer? Well, if that's what the book of Job is all about, that never gets answered. That's not what the book of Job is all about, exactly. Job has all these problems. Then he's got these three friends that quote scripture, man, they rip them to shreds. With friends like Job, you don't need enemies. Until the fourth guy comes along, and some people think that's an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ, but that's speculative. But the point is, what the real issue of the book of Job is, see, you and I as readers of the book of Job are treated to a conversation Job didn't know about. Right up front. This deal, this, this contest, if I can call it that, between God and Satan. And uh, Job didn't know that was going on. Didn't matter. Why? Because the issue was, did he trust God? The real issue, could Job somehow maintain the divine viewpoint? Could Job trust God enough to know that somehow there's purpose in all this and that's God's business? So it's not so much why the innocent suffer as much as is maintaining the divine viewpoint. And that's part of what James is starting to develop here. The word temptations here, by the way, doesn't refer being tempted to sin, but rather the testing of faith. It's an unfortunate translation in that sense. And then James goes on to explain why we count this for joy. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Remember that you're suffering. If you're in Jesus Christ, nothing can happen to you. I'm not saying if you're, if you're not in Christ... All bets are off. That's a whole different theology. I won't even get into that. I won't speculate about that one way or the other. But if you're in Christ, everything that happens to you is Father filtered. It's done by His will. Permissive will or directive will. I won't get into all that right here. So part of the issue is, I'm going to suggest in other ways, my line is this. Every day, God finds another way to ask you, do you trust me? And there's lots of ways he asks that question, but your whole life's walk 
is your response to his asking that question in different ways. Do you really trust him? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. You might want to put a tab on Romans 8.28 and check it every day make, it still, make sure it's still there. Every day God asks you, do you trust me? What's the purpose of your suffering? It's to prepare you for ministry. If you've had a particularly unique setback, one of the possibilities, not necessarily for sure, but one of the possibilities is maybe God is having you weather that storm so that you can minister to people who are going through that storm. A cancer threat? A medical setback? A bankruptcy? Whatever. Fill in the blank. It might be to prepare you to, to minister to somebody that's going to need your ministry in that area. Now, if you profess the Lord Jesus Christ, you can count on that profession being tested. He promises you that. There's lots of verses, you know, when you're persecuted, men revile you and so forth. In our case, we were teaching the Bible. We were Christians for more than 20 years, 30 years, whatever. Leading Bible studies with some regularity. The Lord plunged us into a... A miserable, miserable bankruptcy. Not just where we lost everything, but I had put in most of the money in the company, but it was a public company and there were other public investors. And uh, it went into bankruptcy. Chapters, not just chapter 11, chapter 7. I personally had guaranteed, in addition to my own investments, guaranteed loans and things, and that wiped us out. And that was, I was suicidal. And it was, uh, it stripped everything I'd worked for for years, a dream home, lost everything. And you say, and, and I can remember driving from Big Bear I'd go down several times a week, down the hour, hour and a half, down drive down the mountainside. I had a $5 million policy on my life. Still effective, strangely enough. Every oncoming car was an opportunity. And I hope I never forget that feeling. Because I died. Not physically, but as far as I'm all my dreams, all my ambitions, all the things I'd built, spent 30 years as an executive building, crumbled. Why? To show me something better. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.